Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. We're all watching events unfold as Russia continues its invasion into Ukraine. Is this all about Vladimir Putin? Or did the United States and the European Union create the conditions for it to happen? In part, it looks like we're reaping the whirlwind from catastrophic green energy policies, recklessly pushing Ukraine for NATO membership, uh, years of the EU's refusal to invest in conventional conventional military forces. But perhaps, and it, it may be too late to recover from this, allowing the United States nuclear deterrent to deteriorate, uh, which may have led Vladimir Putin to believe he has the strategic nuclear upper hand. From reports I've heard, he has assumed personal control of the world's largest nuclear arsenal from one of his underground bunkers, shielded beneath thousands of feet of granite. Is this true? Has Joe Biden blundered us into a nuclear war over Ukraine? I've asked my frequent guest, Dr. Peter Vincent Pry, to join us with and give us some insights into this. Um, he's executive director of the Task Force on National and Homeland Security, served as chief of staff to the Congressional EMP Commission, and director of the U.S. Uh, um, U.S. Nuclear Strategy Forum. Just recently, he published a piece titled The Nuclear Crisis Nobody Knows. Peter, welcome. Great talking with you. I'm, I'm very eager to learn what you think about where we are right now. Uh, Let's start with uh, your, your thoughts about, uh, I don't know, let's start with wherever you want to start, uh, where, where we are in this crisis, and are we really risking uh, a nuclear, uh, uh, nuclear war? Well, let's start with that issue, because that is ignored completely by the mainstream press. Uh, they report Putin's nuclear threats but they are dismissed both by the press and by the White House and by the uh, Pentagon as bluster and nuclear saber rattling. And I think we're facing an unprecedented danger that we've never experienced in the nuclear missile age, a circumstance where uh, we are on the threshold of a, of a nuclear war, a nuclear attack from Russia, uh, but, it, but uh, the administration doesn't want to acknowledge that and is lying to the American people about the danger uh, you know, and I think there's reasons for that. The chief reason being that the Biden administration is desperate uh, to avoid appearing weak and to avoid taking responsibility for a blunder that, that makes Afghanistan pale by comparison, uh, that has uh, misguided the Ukraine policy has bumbled us into a near nuclear war with Russia. Politically, they don't want to accept responsibility for that. And they also have a uh, strategic reasons for doing that, uh, you know, because this is the most anti-nuclear administration that we have ever had. There are many anti-nuclear activists that are serving in the Biden administration and the new, their nuclear posture review hasn't come out yet. Uh, they, they, their agenda is to deeply reduce U.S. nuclear weapons and U.S. dependency on nuclear deterrence. Well, well, that, well, well, Biden just annou announced last week, though, that he had put the 
uh, Russian nuclear arsenal on, on high alert. They've, as you've written, they're like four levels of, of, of alertness, and he could be on level two or three. What is that? Okay. Uh, you know, base, uh, level, there's a constant combat readiness, increased combat readiness, threat of war readiness, and full combat readiness. Uh, and I, I believe they're at least at increased combat readiness, if not threat of war readiness. And threat of war readiness is the level of, of mobilizing their nuclear forces uh, so that they're one step away from an all-out nuclear war. At full combat readiness in the Russian scheme of things, the way their mobilization process works, you are at a, in a nuclear war. Uh, you know, so if you're at th uh, so if you're at the second or third level, you're much closer to a nuclear war than you are on a normal day-to-day -day basis. Although I would point out that even at their normal state of readiness, at constant combat readiness, one of the things that isn't understood, I'm not even sure the Pentagon really understands it, because they know our own triad a lot better than they know the Russian triad. And they have a real bad habit of only looking at things from our point of view and not their point of view. But the Russian triad is very different from ours. It relies much more heavily on intercontinental ballistic missiles, which have a very high readiness. They can be launched in three and a half minutes once Putin authorizes them to be launched. And they can basically fight and achieve their damage goals just with that force that's in constant combat readiness without mobilizing the other forces. So one of the few indicators that we have are, is the geostrategic situation in the world such, is there a major international crisis going on that would justify a nuclear attack? And second, do we have any indicator that the Russians have, have, have moved in the direction of that? And the biggest and single most important indicator is the, uh, is the National Command Authority. You know, Putin has self-deployed himself to his nuclear bunker and, uh, and put his forces on a, on, on nuclear alert. We, if we didn't know anything else except those two things. Is that, is a, that a confirmed report? Do we know for certain that he's thousands of feet under, underground? Uh, that, another problem is, is that our intelligence isn't good enough to know right. a, a lot of these things. You know, well, we don't, well Peter, uh, we, we've talked we've talked about our our triad or the conventional triad. And it's, uh, let me just see if I can give a layman's description. It's it's submarines, B-52s and and uh, ICBMs. And I think you've written extensively about the fact that uh, the submarines are mostly in, in dock right now. They're in port. They're not really ready for, to go out to do to do battle. The B-52s are. I think they're almost entirely parked at various airfields in various states of uh, readiness or disrepair. And our ICBM arsenal is theoretically more ready, but we haven't tested most of this ar ar arsenal in decades, so we're not even sure if it's going to work properly. That's right. Uh, we do uh, periodically test the missiles. Uh, uh, interestingly, we were about to test one of our Minuteman three missiles and do a test launch of it from Vandenberg Air Force Base. But the uh, Biden administration canceled that because they wanted to de-escalate a nuclear crisis that they claim doesn't exist. So if there isn't a nuclear crisis, why did they cancel the Minuteman three launch? Well, one of, the provocative, we one, of the, one of the provocative things that we did was, as you pointed out, that when the Biden administration came in, they came in with a whole cadre of anti-nuke people who wanted to systematically dismantle, dismantle what, we, what we have. I mean, what were the things they wanted to do as their agenda 
that they're likely to reveal in this nuclear uh, assessment that they're supposed to be coming out with soon. They wanted to uh, unilaterally ban U.S. ICBMs so that we would give up ICBMs because they consider them to be very destabilizing. Uh, and if they couldn't achieve that, then they wanted us to stop modernization of our ICBM force so that the Minuteman III would not be replaced with the new ICBM. So it would basically obsolete, uh, uh, turn into junk in its silos and be eliminated by obsolescence. Uh, they wanted to eliminate nuclear bombers so that we wouldn't have B-52s or B-2s that were capable of performing nuclear missions. They wanted to cut the ballistic missile submarine fleet in half from 14 boats, in fact, more than, uh, than half, from 14 boats to six, and, uh, and basically reduce the number of nuclear weapons in the U.S strategic nuclear deterrent from 1500 to about to a few hundred. So we would basically go to a minimum deterrence posture, which is what the object of the, uh, of the, of the anti-nuclear radicals has been for many decades because they, so, because they don't believe. And why would they do that? Because these people uh, don't believe that any rational actor would ever use nuclear weapons uh, and therefore, all you need is a bare minimum deterrent in order to deter anyone. Uh, that's one of the things that most makes the current nuclear crisis most dangerous, you know, because Biden is acting, you know, as if uh, uh, Putin would have to be a madman to use nuclear weapons, that it's not a rational decision that he would make, despite the fact that Russian doctrine calls for that, that they've exercised it that their force structure is clearly designed for war, war fighting and surprise attack. And that's why the Biden administration are like children playing with nuclear fire. So they have, for example, in the first time in history, you know, flown B-52 nuclear bombers from Minot Air Force Base, to Ukraine, and then for the first time ever to Poland and have B-52s flying up and down the, uh, the border of NATO Eastern Europe, you know, uh, as if that's not going to provo be provocative. So so our, I, my, when we talked a couple months ago, we talked about the B-52s. My impression was that they were all parked. What I'm hearing right now is that, no, we've, they're not all parked, and they've got them up flying around uh, just outside Ukrainian airspace. Well, they are, they are all parked. They're not on, uh, they're not on uh, strip alert. Uh, you know, we, we sent a few of them to the United Kingdom. We didn't send the whole force. You know, we have about... Okay about uh, 50 B-52s. And uh, uh, you know, most of those are still parked on their three Air Force bases. They're not fueled up. The pilots aren't sitting in the cockpits ready to take off. It, takes, it would take us three days to mobilize our, uh, our B-52 bomber force, three days. Uh, but we have sent some of the B-52s as a demonstration to the Russians about our resolve. It's not clear if those B-52s are armed or not. They're, they're probably unarmed, knowing this, the anti-nuclear bent of this administration. But the Russians don't know that. Nobody knows that. And so that's the kind of stupid thing that can easily lead to miscalculation. You know, when the Russians might, might think, well, uh, you know, that maybe the Biden administration is getting ready to make a demonstration and strike us and do a, a, a you know, a preemptive strike. Because, because they know that if Russia strikes first, we cannot win the nuclear exchange. The only possibility we would have for, uh, for coming out better is if we struck first. Whoever strikes first in a nuclear conflict is probably gonna be, uh, uh, probably gonna be the winner. Although our, our deterrent has so deteriorated and because we do not have 
the kind of underground, deep underground command posts that the Russians have, uh, I doubt that even if we struck first that we would prevail. How many people understand this and how many people in the Biden administration understand it? Almost nobody understands this, it seems. I mean, there's a handful of uh, people around, mostly retired from the Department of Defense, who uh, were uh, gained their expertise during the Cold War. You know, when nuclear strategy and nuclear war fighting was taken seriously, the last administration that did that was the Reagan administration. You know, there's very few people around. Uh, um, I don't really know of anybody. Um, well, Admiral Charles Richard, I think, you know, he's the head of STRATCOM. I think he gets it. He understands it. Uh, but he's not, he's pretty much a lone figure. I think most of the expertise we have is concentrated in, in, in STRATCOM. Uh, uh, you know, but do they, they don't have the ear of the White House. They're the very people that the anti-nuclear activists in the White House hate, you know, and, uh, and, and feel are, uh, are, uh, um, uh, are opposing their agenda. And they are opposing their agenda. Well, and Richard has pushed back very hard against all of these ideas uh, that the new nuclear posture review, uh, you know, might try to uh, take, get, take away the ICBMs and, and denuclearize bombers. You know, he has opposed all that, as has his staff. So we do have part of the Pentagon that, uh, uh, that, uh, that, that still thinks strategically about nuclear weapons. Well, how, how provocative is it for Anthony Blinken to get on Face the Nation or whatever Sunday morning show he was on and I want to change his name to Blinking because he's standing there like a deer in the headlights saying he's given Poland the green lights to uh, to use their send their planes to uh, Ukraine and return. I guess we're supposed to be providing uh, Poland with replacement fighter jets. How provocative is that? How likely is Putin likely to interpret that as as invading the, the airspace and therefore a first step towards a, a nuclear uh, confrontation. And I got a multi-part question here. People talk about tactical nuclear weapons. And right now we've got so-called conventional. Is If he does retaliate with nuclear, if it's tactical, is that a difference in degree or in kind? A difference in, uh, in, in, uh, uh, in kind and in degree. Uh, you know, tactical nuclear weapons are short-range nuclear weapons that would be used on a battlefield. Uh, they wouldn't be used against the United States. Uh, weapons that would reach our homeland are called strategic nuclear weapons, and they tend to have higher yields. And the kind of targets they would have would be strategic targets. Uh, you would, if you were trying to, their, their first strike would try to disarm our nuclear forces by blowing up the ICBMs in their silos, destroying the bombers on their bases, destroying the ballistic missile submarines at their ports. A tactical nuclear weapon is designed to be used on a battlefield to destroy a battalion of tanks or to sink an aircraft carrier, uh, you know, or uh, or uh, uh, if you had an air-to-air -air missile, for example, the Russians have tactical nuclear weapons for their air-to-air -air missiles to win a, a, a fighter a fighter aircraft uh, uh, duel in the sky. A lot, of, a lot of people predicted that the Russian conventional military would just steamroll right through Ukraine in a matter of a couple of days, two, three days, and and it would be all over. Well, that, that hasn't happened. They've, and I, I don't think we've got enough real information about what, what's happened and why. Um, but the conventional weapons are not necessarily making the kind of rapid progress I'm sure Putin was told he would get. And so does that 
what's the probability he then decides, well, look, I've got to, I got to wind this thing up. Maybe I ought to use a few tactical weapons in order to uh, bring this to a more rapid conclusion. Yeah, this is really kind of ironic because uh, uh, even the anti-nuclear activists among them and among thinking people, one thing we do agree on is uh, a scenario where Russia would use nuclear weapons is if it were fighting a conventional war and, uh, that was vital to its interests and it got bogged down in that conventional war and it looked like it might lose that conventional war. And then yeah. rather than lose, they would resort to tactical nuclear weapons to, 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 to prevail. And uh, the Biden administration policy is creating exactly that scenario. You know, our, our object is to keep the war going as long as possible, to turn Ukraine into a new Afghanistan, to kill as many Russian soldiers as we can and bleed Russia white and leave them broken and humiliated on the world stage. It's, it's keep creating the very scenario that even the Biden anti-nuclear activists, you know, have agreed would, could lead Russia to use tactical nuclear weapons. We have to be enormously skeptical about uh, the progress in terms of Russia's uh, general purpose force, the normal conventional war that's going on, because almost all of our information is coming from Ukraine and it's coming from a Biden administration that's very biased uh, to make the Russians look as bad as possible. And the reason for that is because the media and the Biden administration wants everybody to forget that Biden put America's national security credibility, our superpower credibility, on the line in Ukraine. He drew a line in the sand in Ukraine and dared Putin to cross that line. Then Putin crossed it. That's far more important than whether Russia comes out the winner or the loser in Ukraine. The fact of the matter is, you know, our superpower credibility was put on the line. And now our response to helping Ukraine is extremely weak. It's employing the feather of economic sanctions and fighting to the last brave Ukrainian, basically is what comes out. So all of our allies around the world, regardless of what their opinions are in the passionate passion of the moment, when they have an opportunity to think about this in the future, Japan and Taiwan and our European NATO allies are all going to ask the question, well, is this what the United States is going to do for us? If Russia attacks us or China attacks us, is that our bold response going to be economic sanctions and letting us fight to the last brave Japanese? Yeah, we're going to, here's, here's, our, here's our position. We're going to let you fight to your right. last man standing. <laughs> right, That's exactly. Great. So, uh, so in, uh, in other words, it, it destroyed the foundations of the world order that's based on U.S. security guarantees. Moreover, so, so as Putin, Putin as Putin pushed all of his chips into the under the table in, oh, in no. terms of his power and his in his life, how much where where is he in terms of what his options are right now? Uh, I think he's you know what he's doing is he's going to apparently he's going to just keep using his conventional forces you know to overwhelm the Ukrainians. And eventually achieve victory uh, in in Ukraine, uh, you know, at a at a conventional level. But uh, we we haven't seen him things he has and that NATO does not have. Uh, you know, he could he could have used cyber attacks to black out their electric grid. Uh, he could have used nuclear or non nuclear EMP uh, to black out the whole European NATO grid uh, or Ukraine's NATO grid with non nuclear EMP weapons. He could have used chemical weapons. He could use biological weapons. Russia has a unilateral advantage over both Ukraine and the NATO member states and all those things. He has not unleashed his air force, uh, you know, for some reason. 
And these are kind of mysteries as to why not. Why did, why did he not from the outset take advantage? Uh, he's violated some fundamental principles of, of Russia's own military doctrine. For example, uh, uh, and I have to admit, I was surprised uh, that he decided to attack now. I thought he was going to stand down and then attack it during the summer, all right? Uh, you know, and leave the forces in place to build up even further and then attack during the summer. But uh, fundamental to Russian military doctrine is to achieve tactical and strategic surprise against an adversary. And he completely gave up strategic and tactical surprise because, uh, you know, we saw him coming and he uh, escalated, mobilized his forces and went in without any surprise at all. That might be a bad thing for us. It kind of demonstrated such contempt for NATO and America and the Ukrainians themselves that he didn't think he needed strategic or tactical surprise. And so he went it went all in. Uh, uh, he didn't uh, destroy the Ukrainian Air Force, which is the first thing he should have done, you know, to gain air superiority. Um, but, or at least I assume he did it. I'm not sure I, we can believe anything we're being told, all right? That's the issue. We've got to, yeah. this, this, this thing is shaping up again along partisan lines. And it's fairly stunning. It's almost reminiscent of what we went through with the with the virus and the lockdowns and all the news. Uh, you know, it's being covered in a particular way and you're not allowed to see other points of view. I'm not sure we've got a clear picture. Uh, sure, Peter, you're probably the world's, world's leading expert in EMP, um, which uh, I, I, I forget exactly what our acronym stands for, but it's uh, it's electromagnetic pulse, and that's where you can take out an electrical grid. Why hasn't he done something like that in the Ukraine? Well, he, he could, and maybe he, ha maybe he has on a limited basis. You can use non-nuclear EMP weapons to make very selective kind of attacks. He could have used, I did an article uh, that reminded everybody about analysis done by the EMP commission, uh, you know, that with a single nuclear EMP attack, if he de detonated a weapon, 70 miles above NATO headquarters in Brussels, the EMP field would black out electric grids from Ireland to Poland, and it would create a red carpet for Russia to just walk to the English Channel if they wanted to. He hasn't done, uh, he hasn't done that, obviously, because that would escalate into a, a third world war, but he, but he could do that. Uh, you know, I, th I think, and I agree with those analysts who were, I still agree with those analysts who, uh, said when you compare the, uh, the forces that, that, uh, that, you, that um, Russia could, uh, uh, if, they, if they had fought against Ukraine the way they planned to fight against a NATO member state, you know, that they could have quickly defeated Ukraine and walked right over them. But there are reasons people are forgetting. There are reasons the Russians haven't done that. Uh, you know, uh, Putin wants Ukraine to be part of Russia. You know, he's not, he doesn't want to completely destroy the whole country, which is what he would do in an all-out war against the NATO member state. He wants to capture the critical infrastructure intact. He wants to limit the civilian casualties, despite what we're hearing in the, in the media propaganda, he wants to limit civilian casualties as much as possible. Uh, you know, uh, uh, in order, I think he wants to destroy the Ukrainian army in the countryside and not engage in the destruction of the cities by fighting them street to street, building to building in the cities. And so the way to do that is the, it's called fixing the enemy forces out in the countryside, 
and wearing them down. So they run out of fuel, ammunition, personnel. And, and, and this is a slower process than your classic blitzkrieg, which is how they would fight against the NATO member state, you know, where they don't care about your critical infrastructure. In fact, the critical infrastructure is a target and they would go after and destroy the critical infrastructure and, uh, and, and gain air superiority uh, so that they could uh, uh, destroy bridges and destroy columns of, of, of tanks and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and achieve quick victory that, uh, that way. They wouldn't, be, uh, they wouldn't care about limiting civilian or military casualties. So, so, so if I could interpret, though, there are a lot of people now who I don't think know very much who are crowing about the fact that the Ukrainians have slowed the Russians and the Russians' military is not nearly what it's cracked up to be. I think what you're saying, if I'm hearing you, is that Putin's deliberately engaging in strategic forbearance because he really wants Ukraine to be part of the greater Russia and, and taking the more draconian uh, military measures doesn't suit that interest. And so he's willing to let, spread this out over a few weeks, a month, or two months, something like that, and then end up with some sort of strategic uh, outcome where he gets most of Ukraine, maybe not all of it, but that would, uh, that would satisfy him. Is that? Well, yes, that this, a, is a, this is a theory uh, yeah. that I think explains the evidence better than what's being put forward on television. I don't know if I'm right. It might be a, a, a wrong theory, but I know I'm right about this, that, the, that we shouldn't believe anything that we're being told right now, and we should be suspending judgment, and not jumping to conclusions that the Russians aren't 10 feet tall. And therefore, because this is also being used uh, to uh, by people like Lindsey Graham, and other irresponsible people to say, oh, let's jump into this fight. Let's join the glory and cover ourselves with glory, uh, you know, by beating up on the Russians in Ukraine, because obviously the Russian army is a paper tiger. I would please remind people, let's think we have such short memories. You know, who was a paper tiger in Afghanistan? How well did we do in Afghanistan? How well did we do in Iraq? How well did we do in the Vietnam War? Uh, you know, Think about any of our wars where we've had reporters embedded, where we've had all kinds of information uh, that is much more objective, uh, you know, uh, various sources that could, uh, uh, could tell us information. I mean, I remember during the Vietnam War, we were being told right up until the 1968 Tet Offensive that we were winning decisively. And, uh, and, and, and then we were surprised. So uh, in Ukraine right now, all of our information is coming from two biased sources that have an interest in making the Russian army look as bad as possible. And that's the Ukrainians and that's the Biden administration. So I don't trust any of them. I don't trust any of the maps that they're showing us on, the, on TV news at night. Uh, 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 you know, it'll probably be some time after the war is over but we, that we find out what the real truth is. We already know there's all kinds of disinformation. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the MiG-29 ghost pilot, for example, has turned out to be not true. The events on Snake Island were a lie. Uh, I see the uh, there are patriotic writing. Last night I saw on television on, a, on a, a blown out building, you know, patriotic slogans for people to hold on and keep fighting written in English. OK, uh, you know, which is obviously aimed at us, uh, you know, so yeah, NBC, uh, NBC, I'm sure we use that. Right. That, well, <laughs> even Fox News did. Uh, you know, that's where I saw it. Well, Fox <laughs> uh, has come in on that side of it as well. Exactly. And, and not even they said, well, why is that? Why are these uh, invitations for us to join the Ukrainian war uh, written in English on the side of these buildings? You know, 
so uh, the uh, uh, now I'm not a defender of Putin or of Russia. I think I think Putin's an evil man and Russia's an evil empire. Uh, uh, but the bottom line is is that if if and and one of the other things I find most frustrating about this is uh, uh, is how what a blown opportunity this was for the Republican Party uh, that has rallied behind Biden basically and has swallowed hook, line, and sinker this whole thing. Uh, uh, it's almost as if somebody told Biden, "You you can you can rally the American people behind you by getting in a little confrontation, eyeball to eyeball confrontation with uh with with, with Russia." that your friendly media will tell the American people you've won to turn you into a hero and save yourself during the midterm elections and distract people from your, your terrible yeah, domestic is, policies. This, this, uh, is, this has become uh, um, Biden's wag the dog in a, in a sense. Yeah, with, where are the Republicans? With yeah. You're supposed to have an America first nationalist foreign policy. If you're a conservative, that's what you're supposed to believe in. Where are the Republicans demanding Mr. President, what are U.S. vital national security interests in Ukraine that are so great that it's worth getting into a nuclear war or a large-scale conventional war with Russia? Well, there are none. We've got a couple of minutes. I wanted to get you and I have talked about we're really going after the wrong empire in a sense that China looms much more threatening in the long term or even the medium term, especially with regard to Taiwan. And China, and, and China seems to come into this and, and at, at Russia's back because this serves China's longer term interests. I mean, is it how do you how do you see this playing out uh, with China? Well, you know, I, I, I think that this is clearly going to strengthen further the alliance between Russia and China and between those two actors and their client states, North Korea, Iran and international terrorism. And this is the most formidable block of military and economic power that there, that the that we have ever faced in our history, uh, and it's a uh, if we continue to uh, help the Ukrainians to kill Russians and escalate this situation, it's going to further strengthen. And in fact, we may find ourselves stumbling into a World War III that we will lose against Russia and China because in the theaters of conflict in Ukraine, we can't win. We can't even defend the frontline NATO states against a Russian attack. Uh, you know, our own war games show that. We can't defeat China over Taiwan. We've had 19 war games that show us losing there. You know, the uh, uh, and we especially can't win if this thing escalates to the uh, to the to the nuclear level. But we can't even win at the conventional level. Uh, the, we need time to rebuild our conventional and our nuclear capabilities. We need to follow a smart grand strategy. The smart move always has been on this chessboard is try to try to split the Russia-China access to try to get Russia to be at least neutral, if not a US strategic partner. And we blew a golden opportunity before the Ukrainian invasion because Russia had offered up a peace treaty that was not unreasonable. That was not unreasonable. We could have used that as a basis for negotiating a strategic partnership with Russia that would have split the Russian-Chinese alliance. Now that the Ukraine war is on, we obviously can't go back and try to make peace with Russia under these circumstances. But we can we can be neutral, you know, and, and take no side. That the Ukraine will either fall to Russia, or it will become a long protracted, uh, uh, you know, guerrilla war. We shouldn't want either part of it. We should uh, our interests are not involved there. 
Our interests are to rebuild our military and our nuclear strength, protect ourselves from cyber and EMP attacks so that we can once again be a strong nation. And when we have recovered that strength, then we could offer, go to Russia and offer strategic partnership with a strong America. You know, I think that's what President Trump wanted to do all through his administration. And Putin was waiting for him to do it, uh, but he wasn't able to because the Democrats created this fiction that he was Putin's puppet and his presidency was illegitimate. I think Putin is smart enough to understand that in the long run, uh, China is a bigger threat to Russia than the West and the United States. And so he has incentives too, to want to make peace with us uh, if we will only let him. Well, I'm thinking that time has passed for the first chance to get it done, but we may have a chance in the future. And let's all keep our let's all let's all pray that we end up with uh, with a reasonable outcome here and that we can continue to think um, long term strategically. I think the, the thing I wanted to and we've established that I want people to understand is that we got to be very careful about being provocative about airspace and assassinating people and trip us into some a, a nuclear war because it's a nuclear war. We won't win. That's right. We won't win. Uh, we don't believe we can win either. We've brainwashed our that, that's one of the things that makes it so tempting too, to the Russians and the Chinese to escalate to the nuclear level. They believe you can win. And 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 from their perspective, the way they calculate victory, they're right. You know, they were willing to make take tens of millions of, of fatalities. Uh, you know, during World War II, and they consider that a glorious victory. You know, uh, we've never taken more than 750,000 dead in a war, and that was the American Civil War. We have no conception, you know, what, what it's like to lose millions and millions of people. You know, for, uh, did, didn't Russia lose 30 million in World War II? They did. Those are 30 million dead, not 30 million casualties. Dead. Yeah, yeah. casualties were 50 or, or higher. Yes, that's right. And, uh, uh, China also lost tens of millions during uh, during uh, World War II, as well as during their own cultural revolution. Uh, these countries are willing to sacrifice millions of their own citizens, even for domestic purposes. You know, during the terrors that they uh, that they had, so they have a very different mindset. But, uh, one could almost argue that, in a way, it's uh, impossible for a democracy uh, to win a nuclear war because our highest value is the lives of our citizens. And when you have the mass destruction of the lives of citizens, the the thing that is most important to us, the mission of the state, is uh, is is defeated, which is protecting the lives of those citizens. This is not the case with the totalitarian states. Their most important goal is to protect the lives of their elites, and the and the people of those uh, are just a means to an end of the elites, and they can be sacrificed. So that's another reason why we want to avoid getting into a conflict because the political will that we would have to engage in that kind of sacrifice is just not there. And that's one of the reasons why we are so intimidated by the concept of a nuclear war. But we make the mistake of thinking that our these tyrannies share our values and that they think of nuclear war the same way. They do not. They know they can win against us because they're willing to take the, the, the loss. And, uh, and they love nuclear weapons too, by the way, you know, be, and, uh, uh, and have gotten many technological advantages. They're far ahead of us in the sophistication of their capabilities. Uh, uh, military dictatorships tend to put their creativity into military technology, not into art and culture and, uh, and, uh, and the things that make for a good life, uh, which is yeah. where our values are. 
Peter, thanks for your insights. And uh, let's let's continue this conversation in a few weeks when we know a little bit more about how this is going to unfold, if, <laughs> assuming nothing terrible has happened between now and then. But uh, as always, your, uh, your deep knowledge and wisdom, and I think few people understand you've got a great uh, background also in, a, in, in history, and uh, I think you've got two PhDs. The other one's in uh, what uh, classical uh, studies. Yeah, it's in uh, in history and archaeology. Yeah. So anyway, uh, to be continued, Peter. Thanks so much, and uh, we'll be back. Uh, this has been the Bill Walton Show with Dr. Peter Vincent Pry talking about um, tough subjects like nuclear war and uh, likely outcomes. Uh, join us next time, and we will uh, we'll be back with more to more to uh, inform you and and uh, help you understand what's going on. So thanks much. Thanks for joining us. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.